Guess what? We've just started our very own Catching Up With Cub community and we want you to be part of it. Head to cub.club forward slash podcast now and join the community. Hello, Legends, and welcome to today's show. Catching Up With Cub, as always, is brought to you by Cub, the Club United Business, Australia's number one members club connecting our country's top entrepreneurs and business leaders. And today we're catching up with Cub member David Kier. David is an absolute expert in scaling businesses, having scaled companies across China, such as Subway and Domino's, which are now some of the largest franchises in the area. David has now focused his attention to helping other entrepreneurs scale through his business, Entrepreneur Purpose, a business advisory firm that helps outstanding entrepreneurs take their business to the next level. And let me tell you, he's one of the best people I've ever met on this topic, and I am even working with him personally now. Me and David discuss a whole range of things from his experience in getting to China before it became the business powerhouse it is today and helping the large tech companies grow and start in that region to everything a business owner needs to know in how to scale their business, starting with assembling a team of A players and tips and tricks towards great leadership, including mindfulness and trust-based culture. David is a fantastic mentor and advisor. I know you're gonna enjoy this one. Enjoy the show. After we caught up last time, I knew, shit, I need to get this guy on the podcast because that hour we spent was probably one of the most insightful hours um, of, I guess, advisory, you could call it, that I've ever had for Cub. So welcome to the show. Thanks, Daniel. Well, I'll tell you what, after that hour, I mean, to really understand what you built with Cub, I was uh, I was blown away and I'm really honoured to be here with you. Thanks, <laughs> thanks for bringing me on. Awesome. Well, at, at what I discovered in, in the first couple of catch-ups we've had is that you are truly – uh, in my opinion, one of the the greatest experts I've ever met on scaling businesses. And and I really want to make that the focus of the chat today. Uh, of course, talk about your, your experiences and your journey in business, which which involves, um, correct me if I'm wrong, taking uh, uh, Domino's to China and turning it into one of the largest uh, franchises in China or what, what was it that you mentioned to me? Yeah, well, pretty much. We bought out the prior operator and they had a couple of stores, 18 stores, and we, we sort of knocked most of them down and rebuilt it. And um, By the time I left, we had 120, 130 stores and now it's just hundreds and hundreds. It's actually the leading delivery pizza brand in China. So, so, so I mean, having something like that under your belt, yeah, yeah. and I, I know your journey is even, even deeper than that. So I really want to talk about everything, but where are you from? I don't even know. Are you from... Sydney. I'm from Sydney. I'm from the Northern Beaches. I was born in Monavale Hospital. But I spent 24 years in China and I spent a whole bunch of time in Canberra and Queensland. So I've only been back here in Sydney for five years. And, and what made you move to China? When I was travelling as a student, I'd gone all through Asia and uh, I went to China and I thought, I've got to come here. Why? I just felt it was the future. At that time, it was in 1990, it was sleeping. People on bikes, you know, it was nothing. The beer was cheap, but you could see where it was going to go. And I, I wanted to go and come back, learn the language and, and have a real crack. So. And, and what, just out of curiosity, so you get there, you're 18, whatever you are, what was it that made you feel that this place is going to become something big? What, you what see were you the, seeing? Uh, well, to be honest, a lot of it was gut feel, but you could also see the scale. I mean, it was there was so much there and it was just unrealised. People, like I said, were on bikes, they, they were sort of just – 
it wasn't wealth, but there you could see the creativity and the innovation. And you could sort of just see where it was going to go. It was really clear that it was going to open up at some point. So I travelled there in 90, 1990, so I would have been 20, 25. And then I went, I went and got a job. I thought, you know, I'll need to graduate. I'll need to get a bit of experience. So I worked in the Treasury, actually in Canberra, which is some may not call that experience, but, you know, it was great professional training. And then I went straight up there when I was 28. And by that time, it was really starting to move. So when I got there, well, I quickly got a job as a, an advisor and I was talking to like Sun Microsystems and we all know what Sun, a big computer company, but they had a single hotel room in Zhongguansun, the, you know, Silicon Valley now they call it of China and they're all like that. All these IT companies were just, you know, Microsoft, IBM, just sort of getting started. So I dived in and that was my start, advising those companies on how to do business in a country which at that time didn't even have a company law. It was all undefined. And I was with Deloitte and uh, it was it was a real boot camp on how to do business in China. So that's where I learned sort of my trade in China. And so you, you were always very good with, I guess, finance and money. That was your background coming from the treasury or, or was it more with uh, advisory, business advisory? Like or what were well, you naturally I, I, good at? I started, started my career – I had a journalism and an economics degree. That's why I, I came out of school, great university with. But I liked um, I liked the planning and economics, but I wanted something a bit more human. And I found with economics, you, you know, it was interesting intellectually, but to really sort of get me excited, I need to – I like working with people and I like building success. And so it's funny. I started out working at Treasury, but my university job, I drove taxis on the Gold Coast – and if you drive taxis and you don't chase customers, you end up sitting in a car and wasting a lot of time. The only way to get a customer, and I would do 12-hour shifts, sometimes 24-hour shifts, and the time would go like in a blink of an eye. Whereas when I was working for hour rates in supermarkets and the like, uh, the time went real slow. And then it was only years later that I realised, hey, um, that's when I should have realised I was an entrepreneur. I worked for government. It was really good training. I worked for Deloitte. It was really training but I got to work with great clients at Deloitte and that's when I started to realize you know what I really like working with people. And so your job was to help these tech companies enter the Chinese market? Enter and build. So initially I was with sort of a Dun & Bradstreet related company doing research so we do research studies and that was interesting. Then with Deloitte we were doing feasibility and joint venture and all that sort of stuff and market entry plans for all sorts of companies. And so, was that like the Wild West back then? Like there yeah. wasn't these laws and there wasn't the market wasn't penetrated. There was billions of people or whatever's in China and it's untapped. They're trying to enter the government. Trying, I'm assuming the Chinese government would have been trying to do something as well. You know, What was it like? It was raw. It was really raw. It was untapped. There were obviously laws. I mean, it's a civilised, very civilised country, ancient history, but the commercial law, Deng Xiaoping, the leader, prior leader of China, He'd only sort of said in 1990, it's okay to really go and build things commercially. He went down to Shenzhen, Shenzhen and said famously, let's grow rich. And that was, that was about the time I visited. And then I started working in China, 94, 95. And by that time, it was really starting to take off. So people wanted to build companies and make money. And they were sort of just getting back into it after probably a long period where it hadn't been the thing in China. And so it was raw. Um, there was so much opportunity. And so... Things would go up and down real quick. People made a lot of money and then a lot of there were a lot of broken hearts because it was tough. 
it was tough and that there's a lot of stories in those early days of sort of how hard it was to get things to move. But in my position, I got to learn a lot and uh, I really enjoyed it. it and so how long, so you learned Chinese? Yeah. And you stay, so from moving there, did you plan on staying there a long time or how long did you plan to stay? I went in 93 and I told everyone I was going to be back by the Olympics, the 2000 Olympics. I figured we'd get it. We hadn't quite got it. I thought I'll be back by then. And um, so six or seven years. And you thought you were going to go six or seven That's years? That's right. And how long did you stay? 24. Wow. 24 years. So you loved it? I loved it and I really loved it. But once you start a company and I sort of I sort of had my epiphany quite a bit later um, – I was with, I'd been with Deloitte and I'd done a few other things in corporate roles and someone rang me up one day and said, look, I was actually working in Wuhan for an Australian company. Wuhan we all know about now, but back then no one knew about it. And if Beijing was the Wild West, Wuhan back then was just right out on the ranch. It was completely <laughs> an alternative. And uh, so one of my old colleagues from Deloitte called me up and said, listen, we want to buy the rights for Subway restaurant in Beijing and we need someone to run it. Do you know anyone? And that was my epiphany. I said, I'll do it. I just had an absolute epiphany. I said, I will, I'll do it and I'd love to do it. And it took us about six or nine months to put it all together. I went up there and we built, we bought a couple of subway stores and the area rights and um, built, really had good success. I had a falling out with my two partners. I wanted to get investment, really scale it. And they wanted to be, you know, a little more organic in how we grew it. And I'm like, well, you know, I just don't don't see it. So I, I gave them a shotgun offer, which is, um, you know, I, I set a price. I think it was like 12 bucks a share or whatever it was. And I said, well, I'll buy, I want to buy you out. But obviously if you want to buy me out at this price, you can. And I thought for sure they're going to sell to me. But they bought me out. And so um, and my I was divorced at that stage. I had a two-year-old daughter and three-year-old daughter in Beijing. And I'm like, well, I don't really want to go. But Subway called me up and they said, look, we love what you're doing. Go to Shanghai. There's someone down there. We need you to buy him out and we need you to build a subway in Shanghai. And so by introductions, I met an investor, Frank Krasovic, and he, he sort of loved the idea of investing in a business around subway in China. And so we did a three million Series A. We each put in a seed of about a million bucks between us, uh, seeded it, and then we did a Series A with a friends and family, probably about 15 investors out of mainly US, and we launched uh, what's – became Dash Brands and we got the rights to Subway in, in uh, Shanghai and built it up and uh, really it, we, that took off. We ended up, we, we bought I think six stores, we closed a bunch of them, built it up to 55. Of Wait, that. And, sorry, just to stop you. So Dash Brands, what you just said, Yeah. Dash Brands was your company? Yeah, I founded it. it founded it and, and Dash Brands was a company that um, uh, owned and operated uh, licenses of franchise businesses or – or just Subway? Or? At that stage, we founded it with a view to getting the rights for Subway. And so we founded it, got the rights to Subway, and then Frank came in and the investors and we did our Series A and we, we started rolling the restaurants. And over, I think, three years we built fifty the network to 55. We owned about 35 of them. We had 20 franchisees and all of them except one were making money and growing. And that was one of the first times you'd sort of seen restaurant franchise really work in China. And our whole ethos was they're not going to follow us, a bunch of foreigners, unless we show them we can make money in our restaurants here and do it really well. And so that's what we did and they followed us and it was great. But Subway wanted us to 
only stay in Shanghai. They wouldn't give us natural rights. They wanted us to mainly franchise, which couldn't make as much money. And um, they didn't want you to do an IPO. So you couldn't get that great exit. And about that time, I'd been in touch with the guys at Domino's Pizza and they were operating in Shanghai and Beijing. And they sort of said, look, we love what you're doing with Subway. Would you consider, you know, talking to us? And we, we sort of had a few conversations and that eventually we we got the rights for Domino's Pizza. With Dash? With Dash. And was that for China, uh, China National? And initially Shanghai and Beijing. And um, over a couple of years, we eventually got China National. You said a, a couple of things I want to touch on. The first was that all our restaurants were making money. All your franchises, whether they, I mean, whether they be your owned by you guys or, or franchisees, um, they're making money. And is that something that you could see in today's market that a lot of these franchisable businesses are being created? They're potentially being created uh, in a way that isn't necessarily viable for the franchisee. Um, and they're scaling them really quickly or, you know, because I, I guess the, the key with creating a successful fran- if franchise was the way you're going to scale is that it needs to, it needs to work for the franchisee. And that's something you guys seem to nail. Is that something you think? I got a really strong conviction around that. Tell me. Just to be honest though, our stores, we had 35, some of them weren't doing that. It took them a while, but all but one of the 20 or so franchisees were making money. And our whole sort of presumption is unless they can make money and it's a good business model, it's not going to work. They'll end up coming back at us and the whole thing. And I've seen that happen with so many networks. So with Subway, you can't control the royalties and you can't control the the fee structure, but we could control a lot of things that would enable the franchisee to be successful. So we're really focused on franchise success and profitability and, and sort of a little bit transparency and fairness. If you're repeatedly coming back and either taking extra revenue out of them or you're not transparent about how you do things, the trust falls away. And I'm really big in on any business I build trust. Trust is the key to success in a team, in a network. If you can build trust, you can scale any mountain better, faster, higher than, than the, in all the other guys. Absolutely. And so I think we built trust with our franchise network in, in Subway in Shanghai. It was amazing. Um, and you know, we, we actually had this amazing culture in the company. We really brought everyone in. There was a fun based culture and a performance based culture. And so, you know, it was probably not something you saw every day in that market at that time. And so I really loved that. It was something, um, I, and we were really proud of. So trust is essential for scale. There are those that scale without trust, but I think if you build trust, you'll go faster, further, and it'll be a better ride for everyone. It's interesting you said that because something I always say is that there's no one path to success. I speak to so many people and so many people have different theories on everything yeah. and there's, there's lots of successful people from all the different – That's right. From so many different areas. But And I love that you said that, but 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 you found that when – when everybody trusts each other, including the partners that almost are essential to scale. Normally to scale, people need to make money. Others need to make money. And so having that trust makes it a much more fun and effective environment to scale. You'll get buy-in and you'll get people doing the extra mile and then the extra, extra, extra mile because you're in it together and they know you've got their back. And that's what sort of the magic ingredient is. There are a ton of companies, I don't want to go into, I know a lot of low trust companies that done really well and their approaches is, is different. But I also know 
a lot of studies, a lot of research. There's, you know, books like Stephen Covey's The Speed of Trust and many similar to that. Trust is the great enabler. And if you sort of drive your business from a position of principle, you've got a clear purpose, clear values, and you hold yourself to account, you, you walk the talk, um, and you hold yourself to sort of the standard you want your team or your partners to be, then you're sort of halfway there because people know, what, know where they are with you. You still got to be smart. You still got to know how to execute. You still got to choose the right people, and you still got to you know throw yourself at it. It's not like it's a sort of a magic key where suddenly everything's you know rainbows and butterflies. It's not like that, but it does make a massive difference at the margin, and the enjoyment you get out of it almost certainly will be way better. So, but how do you build that trust? What are some things that you could do to create that environment? Listen, care, um, and often. You know, say, for example, we had a recent roundtable uh, in Cub with a couple of outstanding entrepreneurs. There's so many great entrepreneurs in what you've created, Daniel. Um, but, you know, it's the small things you can do for your team members. Um, just listening, you know, small things that might mean a lot to them won't cost a lot. And if they know they're being listened to, and you can't always give everyone what they want, but if primarily if they know they're being listened to and if they understand where you're coming from and they can see sort of your values, you're going to get buy-in. It's, I think trust is – it takes – builds over time. You know, the, the, time to earn, the time to earn trust, it sort of goes up really slow. And when you've got it, you really know it. You can lose trust in the blink of an eye. It can go off a cliff. And that's why it's so – it's something to really treasure when you've got it. And it's not any one thing. It's your behaviours and your team's behaviour over time. So it ends up being this sort of inter- interlinking sort of circle of success. Organism. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And, and we, we did that. Um, in a in a totally foreign country, at least to me at the time. So one thing that I also found really interesting was that it was your personal will to grow and ambitions that kind of kept pushing. It, it actually kept making you hit a wall uh, that was stopping you, and then it would kind of push you through the wall into a new um, into a new domain. So it kind of ha- it happened. I mean, first it happened when uh, you got the subway. Yeah. Uh, situation and then you know you wanted to grow faster than them and so you know it kind of almost forced you out into a into a new domain and then um uh, and then you got the that you did dash no sorry what was after that dash brands yeah. dash brands and then uh you did subway in a different area and then subway was you wanted to grow more than fa- subway would even want you to do and then that pushed you out of subway and then you then went into dominoes and of course dominated um but it was just interesting to note that you know you weren't fearful of losing what you had, which was already pretty good anyway. You were following your instinct and your personal will and your personal drive, and that kind of forced you it forced you off path off the path you were on, but onto a path that was better suited to you. And they, those are boundaries you said are very nonchalant, like very uh, as a matter of fact. But I'm certain that those are boundaries that a lot of uh, people have or experience, and and they're scary. Choices, because it is a choice. Do you know what I mean? How was that decision for you to do that? Or was it like, no, nah, no, nah, I need to grow it, I need to do the next thing? Or, you know, was it scary? Was it, I would just love to hear your thinking process around each of those steps. Yeah, it's interesting. I had a, an absolute conviction that we were going to scale a major company and we were on the road to somewhere. And once you have that conviction, um, you know, obstacles just become steps on the way. Um, and it's a little bit of personal traits. I mean, I look at my own profile. We could have, we had some big things. You know, there were days when it was like questionable we'd be able to continue. 
and I'm able to persist through that type of situation, whereas, you know, I'll get angry driving on the tra- traffic lights. I'll get angry, more upset at the small things, but the big things I'm able to stay calm and persist through. And I think for an entrepreneur, just having that conviction and vision and belief in themselves, their future and their team is really crucial. And I, you know, after years later, I had some of our senior team members come up and say, you know, that was so hard at that time, but we looked at you and we knew you you were, you had such confidence, so it made us believe. And so I think that's that's sort of the role of a leader to really have that certainty. Inspire belief and certainty. Inspire yeah. belief is a really good way of putting it. And then helping others see their contribution, how they can fit in and, can, and and sort of help build towards the goal. And them in doing that, understanding that they're valued, they're not going to be double-crossed and so forth and so on. That's how that's how we build. And I, I fully agree because when you see the leader falter, like start questioning or worrying or panicking, all of a sudden all the team are like, holy shit, something's wrong or something could be bad or – you know, maybe they don't believe we could get there. Oh, now I don't. But when you see someone and times are bad and they're telling you, don't worry about it. We're going to do good. We're going to be good. This is what we're going to do. We've got a plan. We can do it. I, I'm obsessed with it. I'm going to do it. I'll, I'll do it myself. I don't care. You got, you know, like it, it's going to happen regardless. It doesn't matter what to happen. Like, people automatically like, holy shit. Okay. Yeah. No, nah, this is, I'd rather be behind with this person. This person's going to, going to, um, this person believes and therefore I do. It's easier for me to believe that, that, we're going to yeah, accomplish this. Absolutely, Daniel. You, you, you create that confidence in the team. And again, you've got to know what you're talking about. If you're an enthusiast but you haven't got the foundations of skills or experience or all that it takes, you, it's sort of a, a pyramid of, you know, your objective skills um, and, and sort of your determination and vision and, and sort of bringing it all together. And I, I also – I want to be clear um, – I. You know, there was days I ran really bad meetings. I was short-tempered and, you know, I, I missed on a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, I, I wasn't walking around as a paragon of leadership. But I, I would say that um, I, I, I had certainty about where we were going and um, I emanated that and, and probably I really respected and I'd say loved the team and the people we worked with. Yeah, I day. can relate so much to, to a lot of that. A question I'd have is, you know, these days you hear a lot about um, – yeah, as a leader, you've got to show uh, vulnerability and you've got to show this thing. And now, look, that may or may not be true. I don't do it because I don't believe in it. I don't think that's your job as a leader. In fact, your job as a leader is to not show vulnerability. That's how I do it. And, and again, that's just my opinion. But but I've never seen a good search for myself personally. I've never come across a good situation where I wasn't feeling – I wouldn't even tell people if I'm sick except for Laura. But, 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 but really, no, I wouldn't even tell them because when you're sick, all of a sudden everyone starts getting sick. They're, oh, I'm sick too. You know, if you're sad, everyone's sad. If you're unmotivated, everyone's unmotivated. So if your energy is just up, your skill is up, your, your work ethic is up, your happiness is up, you, if you are up and on, then I've always found that that inspire. it almost gives people that energy, and then they're up and on. And, and I just don't like how people yeah, – this whole, um, you know, leaders should show vulnerability these days. Now, again, there's always the success, and I'm just talking my personal experiences and opinions, but I'd love to hear yours on that. On well, that firstly, in, you emanate a confidence and a certainty about – I've spent time with you and it radiates from you. And, but it's not fake either. 
That's the and other that's, thing that's to make clear. It has, to be, it's it has to be authentic. It's yeah. very authentic. I think you have to – we've discussed that. Um, what I found helpful is um, sort of the idea of servant leadership. I mean, there, there are different styles, but getting people around the table and talking about what you know and what you don't know personally and bringing people in so you're not always having all the answers can create a really strong discussion. I'd say 100% just that element of knowledge share – and being willing to sort of let everyone know that you don't have all the answers, and we're going, but we're going to solve it together. I've been in so many boards, advisory boards, leadership teams, and in the work I do now with amazing entrepreneurs, it's always more 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 heads in the room is better better than one. So I'd absolutely say that. I think that's an excellent point because it is you're you're still showing certainty and belief as a leader, but you're not showing. Arrogance. You're showing self knowledge. Yes. And, you're not, yeah. and self awareness. Like, yeah. hey, I'm not the best at this, or I don't know this. Doesn't mean that I believe any less that we're going to accomplish it, but I may not know this. Who 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 does? Who's got a suggestion? Let's think about it. Let's talk it, it it's through. It's really crucial. And the other, there's a second part of it. Um, I remember I was on a board, I, I was chairman of Australian Chamber of Commerce in Shanghai for a little while, and we had an amazing uh, GM who built, we just had such growth. It was, and a really good group. It's not just voluntary board directors, but I just remember whenever we held a meeting, anyone that had done something, it was always very clear, attribute a credit for that person. Never take credit for someone else's work and be very clear and transparent. And one or two people mentioned that to me afterwards. If you're, if people know that it's not going to be stolen from them and they're putting their best foot forward and you're, you're recognizing fairly, you're not overly flattering them. You're not, but you're not trying to write, you're just like clear. This is what, you know, this is what Janine did. It was fantastic. I appreciate it. At that point, we were in a tough time and thank you. That's all you need to say. But it's powerful because people ultimately know that their role is going to be recognised and transparent. So you're sort of recognising your limits and inviting contribution, but you're also building confidence that the contribution is going to be seen and not because if you if there's a if you if you as leader or others in your team try to steal credit. That's where the back chat starts. And that's the corporate world. Oh, dang, dang, dang. So. And that's the opposite to what you were saying, trust. It, 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 that's an, a, a, an environment without trust. Yeah. You should trust that that person is going to recognise you for your work or that he's going to celebrate you or it's going to do the right thing by you. And um, I, we started, we almost got into the topic of boards and collaboration. Yeah. That's something I want to talk with you about but I want to push that a bit down. I want to get back to your story. Sure. Um, so you had gotten the opportunity uh, with Dash to take Domino's, um, was, did you say nationally or? We built, first we had to spend a couple of years building out Shanghai and Beijing. And uh, we started with Aiden. They We bought the his prior operator. There was 12 in, 12 in Beijing, six in Shanghai. We closed 12 of them and because uh, they were all wrong. We were lucky with our timing. And I think there's a part of being an entrepreneur and setting your intention. When you decide to really commit, often you get some lucky breaks. And one of the lucky breaks for us, I mean, we understood this was probably going to happen, but it really happened, was um, like in those early years for me in the 90s in China, there wasn't any delivery. Even if you could do it, the whole culture was only eat at home. Eat at home and eat at home. Or you go to it, but it was very much, and then suddenly it started to flip. And around 07, 08, Pizza Hut started delivering and it started to really move. And we got the rights in 2010. And at that point, Pizza Hut had been doing it for three years. It started to be a thing. And we just, and at the same time, Domino's launched a new store, global store format. 
and it was beautiful. It was a pizza theatre store. So you go in, it wasn't a huge store, but there was glass. You could see them tossing the dough and making the pizza. And in China, you've got to be kidding. Suddenly there's these stores with the, the pizza theatre and delivery. And so we just got, we knocked down 12 of the 18 and we built the theatre stores. And I think we opened the first one in Asia and one of the first in the world. And that's all we built. And so we're lucky. The timing of the pizza, the economy, just sort of the, the habits change and the level of income allowed it. And then we got the stores. So I think when you you really set your intention, things can work for you in sort of surprising ways. And and that really that was a, that was a two lucky breaks that really drove us drove us to success. And you said you shut twelve of the stores because they were all wrong. What do you mean by all wrong? And how could you see that? Well, Patrick, the CEO of Domino's, came out and he did an amazing job in rebuilding the bread. That was the third break because he Domino's is down and out. And Patrick um, came in and sort of re- relaunched the brand about the time we started a year or two before. Their, their stock price went from you know, three bucks to 120 bucks in five years after we – so we the brand was – and he he looked at the 18 stores and he goes, you know what, you've got 18, brand, 18 stores and you've got 18 store formats. None of them are standard. They're all different. Got big dine-in, small. And so it was really inconsistent. And we knew some of them were in poor locations and some of them just weren't right. So we, we just knocked the ones that weren't going to – we knew were the ones that weren't going to work. We knocked them down just relaunched and then we went back and eventually refitted them all to be theatre stores in time and we just focused on that great store format. We were really clear about where and how and who our target was, all the basics of strategy and we had our brand promise, our client avatar, all the rest of it and we just drove really hard. And then, you know, about a year in, um, we'd always been funded by friends and family rounds. We probably up to our C round by that stage. You know, 100 grand, 500 grand, I'd put a bunch in and, we sort of got to the point we needed more. And um, I was talking to the guys at Macquarie. I was friends with a few of them around Shanghai because of the Chamber of Commerce. And we started talking dominoes. And um, they brought up two of their leadership guys to look at our very first theatre store. And we went and saw the store. And this wasn't scripted and they couldn't believe it. But just that day for lunch, they had a delivery order from a company of like 150 pieces. And so the whole store was just boxes stacked up and people lining down the street because it was just crazy. And and we're like, do you want, do you like our business? <laughs> and they're like, this is a setup. Wow. And so those guys came in and eventually it was. So Macquarie funded you for a big. They put in uh, eventually 33 or 35 US, I think 20, wow. 20 or 21 initially. And um, That's some serious capital, especially serious back capital. then. Yeah. And for them to do it off their own balance sheet and, um, and the, the know-how and skill they brought, they had a couple of, really exceptional professionals sit on our board. And so they, they helped us really get to the next level. And um, that was terrific. Um, up until then it had been sort of hard. We had some days where we we're not sure we'd get through and then, you know, that, that happened. And, um, Why? Because the company was going well, the stores were going good. What, were the, what, what would cause the days that? A couple that of the factors I mentioned. Domino's was turning around itself. They had the pizza stores which are obviously working Pizza delivery delivery was taking off. We were executing well, um, and it was an opportunity to really back a, a trusted brand in in China. You know, we had some great investors, a good board. But, but what was causing bad days for you? What, so, what was causing the days where you were like? Because from when we started closing those stores to rebuild, um, it wasn't always clear it was going to really work like it eventually did. Yeah. And I always find with something you start, you have that sort of dark night of the soul, 
say, initially six months, 18 months. And we sort of had a little bit of that. And then eventually it comes around. And your persistence, your vision, your, your execution, it turns it. And then the good things start working for you. But it's not always like that. Yeah. I won't go into the things that went wrong, but poor locations or trying to get approval for a location. It took 12 months in sometimes in China. You go and meet them and talk to them. And 12 months later, you get the lease. How can you run a business like that? It was nuts. But I think that's important here and it's kind of like you had to take steps backwards before you were able to take steps forwards yeah. and persistence in that process and, and, and keeping that conviction, keeping that belief in yourself and certainty that you're doing the right thing is is essential in, in, in that and the skill of actually being able to do it. The capabilities of being able to do it are essential to to accomplishing that. And so then in your tenure with or, or in your time with Dash and Domino's, so how, you grew Domino's from what to what in China? Well, we went from 18 down to six and I stepped out. I think we had 120-odd stores. Um, I eventually – I had a medical issue. I had to step aside for a little while um, and then I stayed on the board for a few years. And by the time I stepped down from the board, we were at about 120 and now I understand it's, it's almost – it was 500. And wow. It's, it's really rolled. Yeah, really, really – it's just it's, it's taken off. And so what was your reason eventually for um, stop moving out of Dash, I guess? I like building. And it, it, I felt I could make more of a contribution by starting something new. I knew what I'd done and I, I thought I could do it again. I was very confident. And so is, so is that what you're doing now then? You'd I started a travel business based in Shanghai. We bought another a travel agency down here in Brisbane. And we built that for a little while. And we were just very close. I wanted sort of the big play we were after was getting an outbound travel agency license for China as a foreign-owned company. And they weren't giving them out. But we understood they were going to start to. And they sort of had to under WTO, but it hadn't happened. And we got really close um, to the point where it was at approval. Um, just uh, it got up to the Chinese New Year a couple of years ago. And then COVID hit. And the travel industry was closed and it's still closed. It's just about to reopen now, however many years later. And so, so, so you came home, started to Australia. Yeah. Started this travel. Started I, this I started the travel business in Shanghai. First year or two was up there. And then my daughter finished high school. We came back to Sydney. Well, I guess it just shows you that sometimes in business you do get lucky situations and sometimes in business you get unlucky situations. Yeah. Well, you just take the learning. And the key thing is you take the learning or you take the success and you don't let it either go to your head or go to your heart. It doesn't make you a better or worse person. If you if you get smashed, and I, I sort of did because we were close but it didn't quite work out. Had that hap had COVID not happened, I've no doubt that business would be, you know, it would be amazing. But – um. It didn't quite happen and you cannot choose to either carry that with you or, or sort of learn the lessons and move on. And I think that's really success in life. You've got to be able to move on, let stuff go. Um, and, and the same thing, if I walk in, just you know, if I was walking around with some sort of big head because I thought I'd done something, it's not going to do anything for anyone. So just sort of get, keeping that, that sort of perspective as a person I think is um, pretty, pretty important if you can. Is that in line with – the stuff you were mentioning to me before in terms of mindfulness yeah, in business? is very much, it, yeah. How would you describe mindfulness in business? Mindfulness is um, the ability to step back from being in the immediate self a situation. So you've always got a stream of thoughts happening. You've always got a bunch of emotions happening. We're up and down all through the day, don't even know it. 
but just standing back from that a little bit and understanding, okay, that's just I'm excited or I'm angry, I'm thinking about this thing, it's the 50th time I thought about it today, stepping back from it and just getting a bit of clarity. Here I am now, none of that matters. What decision do I have to make? You make a better decision. It's if you had an argument with your son, daughter, wife, best friend, worst enemy, and you walk in to make a strategy session and you still sort of got it all turned up, you're not going to make a great decision. And so mindfulness in business is about getting clarity so you're present in the team in the moment and not, not all the usual sort of noise distracting you. So stepping out of your current mindset into a blank one in, a, in, in cla- order to make yeah. into a clear one, clear in order one. to, to yeah. make a decision for that time. So you, you've almost got to dismiss your the noises in your yeah, head it, or the pains you've Yeah, got. try to. You can't. You can't sort of stop an emotion necessarily or stop a thought, but you can understand it's there. And even by just that, that simple step is sort of going, okay, I'm a bit depressed or angry or whatever, or that thought keeps coming back. Just even being aware of it allows you to step aside a little bit and get more clarity. That's the heart of the idea of mindfulness. I'm a, I'm a mindfulness coach as well. So, how, did you, how did you get into that? Oh, reading, experience. I'm just finishing a course. I've been doing a 12-month course in it. Um, I, I, I found it very powerful in my life, um, practicing it actually, it's, it's been a big, big thing for me. And uh, so what are some, what are some methods or, uh, lessons you could share with me and the listeners about mindfulness and, and how we could perhaps. I, I'd probably say two things, it. just, um, taking, um, a short, there's a ton of stuff out there on it, but just taking three minutes, five minutes, standing back, stop what you're doing, turn the phone off and breathe in, out, and just let yourself be a little bit and under, and just sort of be conscious of what your emotional state is or what thoughts you've got flowing through. Just notice them. All you have to do is notice them. By noticing them, you're suddenly you're not in them. Because most of the time we're in our emotions. When you're not in them, suddenly it's different. Oh, I've got a bit of an anger thought rather than I'm angry. Oh, I can see I'm resenting that person rather than I really resent that person. That's the difference. You're not in it. You can sort of see it. Um, so it's sort of a little bit separate. That's all you need to do. At the heart of it, there's a lot more to it than that, but at the heart of it. And I think another thing is um, just consciously sort of letting stuff go, as I said. You had a win, you had a loss. That's great. Savor it. Enjoy it. Learn the lesson from it. Let it go. Move on. I like the let go thing because it's like you are going to have wins and you are going to have losses. If you, only, if you hold on to the wins, that means you're also going to hold on to the losses, which is going to be negative for you. So you almost say you have a win, great let it go. You have a loss, cool, let it go. And just move on. Yeah, move on and hopefully you get better at things. There's more wins. But it doesn't matter how good you get, there's always going to be loss. It's always going to be hits. Yeah. You know, and you you sort of keep yourself belief and you sort of peace in your heart about yourself. And just because you have a loss doesn't mean you're a different person. It just means you've learned something new. So, yeah. Also what you said about noticing, being aware of your emotion or emotional state as opposed to being in it. It's kind of like when you talk about you, sometimes you've got to step out of your business as opposed to being in your business. So when you're in the in the business, you can't you know it's chaos. You can't see. Sometimes you yeah. just need to step out, look at it subjectively or objectively, whatever that word is, yeah. and 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 assess the situation as a whole as yeah. opposed to being in the situation. Absolutely, and isn't it funny the number of times you might go away for a weekend, go for a hike, go for a surf, and you come back and it all sort of is a bit clearer. You get the thoughts, you know, so. Oh, absolutely. And so uh, the travel thing obviously couldn't kick off because of COVID. So what did you end up doing? 
we wrapped that up and I'm now business advisor. I'm coaching outstanding entrepreneurs. Um, so I'm a metronomics coach. Metronomics is scaling up methodology. It's sort of built on the scaling up approach from Vern Harnish, but probably a little bit modified. And Shannon Susco, who built it, I've, she's out here a few, a few weeks ago. She's amazing. I think it's the best business scaling platform approach out there. It's What's it called? Metronomics. So can people look that up? You can buy the book. I can give you the oh, book. Cool. Um, I'd like it's, book. it's online. I'll, I'll get the book for you. Please. Um, and it's all about – it brings together the core systems of business. So six systems, the soft, three soft systems and three hard systems. So the three soft ones are your culture, which is your purpose, your values, your, your vision or your BHAG, big hairy audacious goal. That's your culture. Oh, and then you've got your human, human system, which is essentially getting the right people in the right seats with the right incentives. And then you've got your cohesion system, which is trust, essentially building trust in your team over time. They're the three. When you get those three. They're right, the three soft systems. They're the three them. soft systems. Yep. And then you've got strategy, execution, cash. Got to have cash. Got to have cash. You can Amen. have all the, all the values, purpose in the world. No cash. No business. No business. No anything. Yeah. Um, you've got to have clarity in your strategy and then you've got to execute relentlessly. Um, so there's not a free pass just because you know, your value is driven. doesn't mean you suddenly have to take it easy. It's, it's still you know, the same. But bringing all six together as, you, as we see in Metronomics and with their online platform and so forth, it's a remarkable system which I found really useful in working with first rate. I only work with high growth, high potential entrepreneurs and helping them on their journey. But did you – you didn't know about that system when you were scaling your business. And I always say I wish I did. Yeah, so that was my point. So when, when you found this, mm. were you like, wow, this this very much – you know when you kind of know something and then someone who knows it better than you says it in a way that you're like, wow, that's a really simple that, – that makes sense. Like This is what I was looking for. Yeah, that's for. how I was – you've just kind of put it – you built my Lego blocks a bit better than I had I, I was had them. messing around with meetings and efficiency and how we communicate better and get that rhythm in the company. And I tried different things. And then I found this like years later. I'm like, if only I had this. Because there's such clarity in how you get your meetings and get your team working together. Yeah. Wow. And, and 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 when you say outstanding entrepreneurs, I mean, obviously you're an outstanding entrepreneur and you you know many. How how do you kind of identify yourself as okay, I want to work with this person. This is this is it. This is this is a good one. Usually you meet them. I mean, we were talking offline about one or two people we know and you you reached a decision pretty quickly about who you thought was strong and you meet a lot. And uh, it's, it's it you know, you, you, it doesn't take long. You, you sit down and I'll, I'll sit down and have a meeting, Zoom or in person preferably, and get to know each other and it's usually fairly clear. And some of them are – I tend to work with teams that are established and at a certain point, but I, I've worked with – a couple of it really early or even pre-establishment. Um, and I, I'll do that in cases where I could really see that they've, they're going to gonna go on a run. And, and I love that. It's just – there's one in particular I'm working with, um, been working for a year, and it's just, you know, first year $7 million, It's just going to – they'll be an industry leader. It's nothing more exciting. And, and But that's – you almost have to look at two things. No, there's – there's and sorry, that that, that advi- business advisory business is called Entrepreneur Purpose. Yeah, my business – my coach, yeah, your, Entrepreneur your Purpose, yeah. And and, um, and but it's a two kind of thing because you need – okay, I need a great person – but do you also say, okay, but they need a great business? Or do you say, this is a great person, great entrepreneur, they'll make it work 
whatever. If that business isn't perfect, they'll figure out a way to find it. Oh, it's a great question. I tend to look at um, the values, the capability and the business idea. I'd like to see all three. And if they don't yet have a business idea, I'll spend time, but it's I'm not going to add that much value. But once they've got the business idea, and especially if they've, you know, passed, say, the, the really early stage, that's when we can we can really make things happen. Yeah. Because the reason I ask is I just raised capital for the first time, not for Cub, uh, for um, the social media for business owners that yeah. we're doing. I'll tell yeah. you about. Did I, t- I told you I raised last time? Did I tell you? Yeah, we did. We, we talked about it. it. You, yeah. you, could, you could do that raise in your sleep. A hundred percent. I got it. If there was one thing I was put on this earth to do that I have not yet done, it is raise capital. I know how to make capital, <laughs> but I, 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 I love, guarantee I, you raising capital would be my. Would I be love my raising theory. money. I but, love I love getting investors. But something someone said to me, was, and I can't say his name either um, at the moment, but but he, he's one of the wealthiest guys in the country and he, he's just the biggest legend. He's always such a supporter of mine and just a, a good dude. And I was at breakfast and I was telling him, um, I was telling him uh, about the idea uh, and I wasn't even really asking to invest either because I don't really ask people to invest. I just find it awkward. But I just tell them about it. If they're interested, they'll, they'll say. And um, he said, also, he goes, uh, uh, sign me up. I'll, I'll be in. And I go, he goes, just send me the bank. I'll send the money in and we'll go. But he said, uh, he goes, I said, yeah, but uh, I was about to say his name. I said, but look, I, I don't want you to do it. If you, you know, don't do it just because it's me. Um, and blah, blah, blah. And he said, look. He's only it, doing it because it's you. Yeah. That's, that's the only reason he he's goes, doing it. I don't back the horse, I back the jockey. That's right. He goes, he said, look, I the, the business sounds like a great idea, but I back that you're going to, you'll yeah. you'll figure something out. You'll, you'll get it where it needs to be. He goes, look, I'm not interested in the meantime. Once you get it to the point where it starts going uh, uh, globally and you need to, you need serious funding and you need the, the big banks to come and help you. And he goes, when you get it there, Come back and t- come back in and call on me. Because until that point, I don't want to hear about it. Just go do your thing. And and he didn't like and that. That's what his thing was. He was just like, yeah, I'll help you out. Get it to that point. Prove what I think you can do. And then look, I'm going to come in and, and, and help out. And I thought that was really funny because he didn't look so much into the business. He just kind of looked at the person, and and uh, I kind of agreed with it because <laughs> well, business changes. Yeah. You're you'd established cub. You're you. And you had an idea, so that's that's basically all you need. Mm. But but it's just an interesting function. I mean, and I think that the new idea is a huge idea. So do I. And so valuable yeah. to, to all business people. But but yeah, but it's an interesting thing. It's like the yeah the horse or the jockey, or both the horse and the jockey, or can you do one or the other? And and tell me when it comes to scaling, which is really what you're an expert in. You you know how to. I mean, you're an expert in a lot of things as we've been able to tell so far in the conversation, but but what are the things that you think people need to have in place in order to scale? What are some of the, I guess, principles of growing successfully? I guess they're kind of the things you said. Yeah, you in know terms what of the, the biggest thing I, I see? I, I'm working with a couple of entrepreneurs and I, I've been talking to a couple that are, you know, at a good level, some that I haven't worked with. Um, and and I, I think um, the, 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 the ability and skill you can pick up um, and you'll see it often in the results and um, and the idea. Um, but a common thing with early stage entrepreneurs is that one, not letting go and not bringing in a, a really A-grade team around them and having A players around them that can it, it's a team that's going to be on the journey. Um, 
that's probably the single thing that I see that can be a blockage in the early days um, because, you know, trust or competence or, or whatever. So learning how to – bringing the great people in and really it's actually a learned skill, learning to manage outstanding people that might be better at you than some stuff. I think, you know, some entrepreneurs might feel threatened by that for various reasons or, or trust issues or whatever, but – Learning to do that well, and you do need to learn, and it's okay to know that you need to learn, but I'd say that's one of the most important steps in scaling. There's a, there's a book called Scaling Leadership. It's basically about that whole thing, uh, a model of how to do it. Um, so I think that's, a, that's crucial. Um, but, you know, obviously having a scaling, scalable business model, really a scalable business model, and understanding how to do that and understanding that there will be stages of your scale. You'll go through sprints and then it'll back off and there'll be new challenges you have to completely shift your company to allow yourself to grow to the next level and might even be new people so i, I think often, often from my conversations with yeah. members often they say oh the people that got me from here to here it, it, it didn't work once i had to get from here to here it, you know, some people had to change or i needed new people to come in for different reasons yeah, I would imagine often people... It's often. And, you know, another really common dilemma is, hey, I founded my company, I'm four years in or three years in, it's amazing, we're really growing, but I've got this one or, these one or two people, they helped me start it, I love them, they've done everything. Yeah, I owe them. I, and I don't know what to do with them because they're not able to contribute anymore. And in that situation, like I've talked about trust and respect and everything, but the best thing you can do for them and for yourself and the company is have the honest conversation and tell them, put it down on the table and let them know. Let them know what, how much you appreciate what they contributed, but there's not a way forward. And you end up hiring someone better. They end up, the person, absolutely, even if they don't know it up here, they'll know it down here in their heart, they will know. And they'll actually, most of the time, in my experience, they're relieved and they end up going on to do something better because, hey, listen, I was with this startup we built for first three years. And they have a lot of great experience. Off they go. So it's actually freedom for them. It's freedom for you. It's mm. funny how often people, because you feel such a debt to the early stage team that really helped you, but they may not help you anymore. Mm. So I think being smart with people, the old ones and the new ones, and knowing how to run with it and building that, I, I'd say that to be, for me, the the key, then you can fund. Like my fundraising, they always want to see my team. You can walk in an A-grade team to a, to a potential investor. That That's, you know, they'll have read the deck. They'll have seen the opportunity. They'll know what you've done. But when they meet the people, if they make a good impression, that's, that's nine-tenths of the battle to get a, an investor over the line. I, I, I think the A players, I mean, it's it's all well and good to say, I mean, I think that is the most important thing yeah. in a business. I really do. Other than the founder, I really believe the, found, the, the founder or whoever that main person is, that person is the, um, I really believe that, that they are the, the heart. You know, they stop pumping, the, the, the oxygen stops flowing. Um, but, but other than that person, it's the, the, the team. And what I my, my I mean my personal thing on finding a plays is just that it's hard to find them. Like it's not that it's it's not that it's um, that it just takes time. Yeah. And like I could even you could look at Cub. I, I always use Cub as the example because what I know and my experiences. But you can look at Cub and you can look as each a player joins a team, the company just gets a lot better. Mm. But it took you know. I don't know, four or five years to to have a suite of A players that then all of a sudden the whole company went, like it just started 
propelling in, 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 in a way it's just never done. And, you know, yes, I, okay, could I have gotten that year one? Well, I couldn't. I hadn't met them. I hadn't found them. You, you Maybe A-plays weren't attracted. Uh, yeah, we had exactly – we actually had a, a really good initial crew at Domino, amazing. Um, but get you, getting the great new A-players, it's, it's hard and you have to sort of think – really outside the square, almost go to a parallel industry or somewhere that's not, maybe you get similar skill or traits, but it's not the obvious fit to get your hiring. You have to hire creatively and you have to have amazing employer branding, like what you're about. And if you can talk about some of the stuff we've been discussing today in your path and journey, if they believe in what you're doing and they're excited, just like with an investor, that's that's most of the way to getting them hired. They're always going to want to know the salary and the JD and so forth. But it it's hard. You work at it. Eventually, they come, and that's when you know you can really start moving. Yeah, yeah. I it, it, I mean, a business is the a business is the team. Really my my final point on this in the early stages: uh, some entrepreneurs and uh, and this is almost the best thing to be a great entrepreneur. You got to be able to sell and really sell. And the first couple of years, you want revenue. You just want to – and some entrepreneurs sell, 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 but they realise they're not necessarily a manager or the overall operator that's going to take it to the next level. And finding a way that they can contribute their sort of magic power, which is sales, and really keep that in the organisation, but getting the management right, that's a pretty typical issue that I've worked with. I reckon most common. Most common. I think. Uh, all the, yeah. you know, and so it works different. Sometimes you go on the board, sometimes you actually go in a sales role and it's, there's different ways to handle it. Every case is different. But being aware of that and there's a self-knowledge and it's the drive. We're going to make this work and if I'm the obstacle doing that, then I'm moving the side because this is going to work no matter what. But it's not just like sales is a blanket term because you're not, it's not just sales like I need to sell to get revenue. It's sales like getting the best team. It's sales like selling the team that we're going to achieve great thing. It's selling the dream and selling the vision and selling for investors and raising capital and yeah. and you know, it, it's marketing and PR. Raising capital is a sale. It is, everything Hiring is great a sale. sales. Yeah, like, getting sales is sales. Yes, everything, everything. Mm. Uh, giving the team goals to accomplish is, is a sale. Like and closing, selling them being able to close. Whatever yeah. it is you do, closing. It is. It's and just, often like even a cub, you'll find there's two founders, there's two partners. One's the sales and one's yeah, the manager. You always right. see it. Like, that's right. You're right. See, w- uh, we never had a manager and uh, we have a few now, but God knows I wasn't put on this earth to manage. I can't do it. <laughs> but but nor do I want to. Like I just, just it's not uh, probably not my style. But, but there's a lot of people like that. But there's a lot of people that uh, are, are really good managers and they're, they're not the – the, the the other side so so and often there's like I said the two people one does one the other does the other and yeah all is beautiful but being aware that's I guess your mindfulness piece you've yeah. got to be aware of what you are yeah. and what you need yeah well let's wrap up there do you have I mean you've you've shared a lot of dropped a lot of knowledge on us today but is there one book that's a must that you think people should go out and get today you've mentioned a few of them. Is there one of those that you think is there? That's a great question. I'm going to absolutely say metronomics because I'm in their system. There's two books in metronomics. One's called The Three Hague Way, Three H-A-G, Three Hague Way and Metronomics. Um, One other book, well, um, I'll mention again Scaling Leadership. 
And and if if you could share what the most important lesson in business you've learned today to do with scaling, to do with scaling your business, what would that be? Have the vision, have clarity, persist, go through, just keep going no matter what, never give up. I love it. Thank you so much for today. What a pleasure, Daniel. Thanks, mate. It was awesome. And to our listeners, if you want to find out more about Mr. David Kier, you can go to cub.club forward slash podcast and find out more information there, including links to the books, favorite quotes, greatest lessons, uh, and get in contact through LinkedIn and all sorts of other things. If you want to catch up with Cub on social, go to at Club United Business on Instagram. It's equally as awesome. Thank you again, David. Thanks, Aaron. Hope you enjoyed the show.